On this podcast, you're going to be hearing some pretty terrible subject matter. We know what you're thinking. That's why we're here. Keep going. However, topics covered may cause emotional or physiological distress to listeners and discretion is advised. Sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to That's Terrible. Keep going. I'm Casey Kay. And I'm Amy Kay. And we are back in June, second week for a new ep. Woohoo! Shall we dive in? Mm-hmm. What have you got for us today? Okay. Well, looking at our stats of our episodes and what our friends have been telling us and a bit of feedback, I thought that the numbers were interesting for our cult episode. Mm. So lots of people just jumping right into the pod, not starting at number one, actually jump into our cult app. So I thought, mm. let's do another one. Yes, because I'm a sicko too and I love cults just as much. You are and we will give you one. And last cult was interesting in that it was like famous in history, but it wasn't that juicy. So I'm trying to go for a one with a little bit more terrible in it and a bit more recent happening in like the 2000s. Well, then keep going, doll. <laughs> so the cult that we're covering today is called Angel's Landing Cult. Have you heard of it? No. All right, then well, I might as well dive in because I hadn't either. This was something I just researched off the cuff and so that's interesting, dolls. Mm. Okay. Well, let's start with the leader, shall we? Mm-hmm. He's a man called Daniel Perez or Perez, whatever you want to say. And he was born in 1959 in Mexico. And although listed as Hispanic, he claims to be, quote, American Indian or Alaskan native heritage. Okay. So sort of picture that look in a person. So couldn't find much info on him for the first 30 years of his life. But where we can start to chat about him, is when he was in his mid-30s in Texas in the mid-90s. Okay. So Daniel Perez had been living there when he met a woman called Trish Gomez. They Those two dated for a while but ultimately remained friends. So park that for a little bit. Then in April 1996, Perez met a woman named Marilung along with her son and 14-year-old daughter, Michelle. Okay. Perez allowed the the small family to stay with him for a few weeks as Marilyn was getting ready to move to another sort of town close by. Yeah. When you say met, do you mean just befriended or like? I don't know. Like this is as much detail as they went into, but I I guess they just met in passing and then Perez got really close to Marilyn. This seems to be a theme with him. So I don't know. Sounds kind. Mm, Because that's what it is. It's a kindness podcast. Mm. You've got kind eyes, doll. I'll give you that. Thank you. Um, but here we go, dolls. So, but it was during this time when Marilyn moved in with her kids and her 14 year old daughter, Michelle, with Perez, that Perez forced Michelle to have sex with him on several occasions. The 14 year old. The 14 year old daughter. The rapes continued even after the family had moved to the town close by Um, and thankfully charges would be eventually filed against Perez for the rapes, but the case was dismissed when Perez was found dead in Mexico. What? And that's where the episode finishes. Oh, that was a quick one. (laughs) No, but he wasn't actually dead. And the officer officers actually involved around this case had only assumed he was dead and it was filed that he was dead in the eyes of the law. 
But what actually happened, and we found out later on, obviously, as this episode continues, but for that case of the rape against 14-year-old Michelle, Perez actually stated that he pled guilty um, to the charges and was actually given probation, which is a joke. Like he was Mm. um, essentially, you know, awaiting to be sentenced. But then on between him awaiting to be sentenced and being moved to a facility, mm-hmm. he had been abducted by four, um, sorry, uniformed men, so four people that might have been officers from the area who beat him and left him to dead, for dead. Oh. So that's how he was like, the officers were like, oh, well, he's dead, don't worry, we won't pursue the court case. Like, So we assume that it's four people taking law into their own hands essentially yeah so they didn't like him one bit and in that sort of area either so he wasn't sure if he was dumped in texas or mexico but he claims that old mate tris trish sorry trish gomez remember that he's first yeah yeah um had found him and taken him to some people that cared for him until he recovered what what is the likelihood of trish finding him yeah i don't know we are, the only recounts of this story is actually from him later mm. on. So we don't know what happened. Whether so making just, the cops look bad. And yeah, then. all of the above. Um, but we'll find out later because it might aid to his little cult leader story. So we'll come back to it. But he definitely was beaten to within an inch of his life. Um, but once recovered, so he the people that cared for him, he recovered. Um, he actually moved to Corpus Christi in Texas. Mm. And Perez, who is now 36, didn't stay in Corpus Christi long. And by the summer of 1996, he had moved to North Dakota. Mm. There he had met a 15-year-old girl. And I think for the case, we'll just use the initials KL. She now remains private um, in her life. Fair. Um, And she believed that Perez was much younger than his actual age. And the pair... Which was what? Which was 36 at the time. Okay. Um, and so she 15, he 36, and the pair soon began a sexual relationship. Mm. And this is where that weird cult leader start type stuff emerges because it was during their relationship that Perez convinced KL that he had magical powers. Mm. He could claim that he could make it rain, not like money, but literally make it rain out of the sky or see someone's past, present, and future lives and could communicate with the other side. The rain one's so easy. It's like the day that it's raining, you go, ah, oh, yes. Yeah. I wished for that. Yeah, and so he, he would do like kooky things like that. It's really silly. So to recap, so now Perez is essentially on the run, even though the police think he's dead, or mm-hmm. the officials, and unbeknownst to the original officers, um, what – He's also now living a life um, sort of floating around um, and engaging in acts of statutory rape. So three months now down into the line bet- uh, into the course of KL's and Perez's relationship, others around the area caught on and so did eventually law enforcement, whom ultimately came to KL's home and arrested Perez. Yes. He was then deported to Mexico but somehow remained a U.S. citizen. So it's it's unclear of like how that happened and how he got away with that. I'm not a lawyer, Dill. Yeah, neither, Dill. Uh, the couple remain in contact via phone over the next year. Um, KL and oh mate. That's yeah. right. But um, KL claims to have not actually known where Perez was living. So it's it's she later said that he never told disclosed location. So like if she, you know the police were like, hey, where is he now? You know where has he gone? She didn't know. Um, 
but the devious slimy Perez was actually back in Corpus Christi, Texas, but assumed the new identity of Lou Castro. Okay. So, oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, and that's a name that that's the name that he was actually charged under later when we actually eventuate in the case. So we'll now switch to calling him Castro or Lou Castro. Mm-hmm. So don't get confused, ladies and gentlemen. It's the, it's the, slight, it's the same weasel. So mm. Castro wasn't single for long. He actually met a woman named Mona Griffith who happened to live in the same apartment complex as him at the time. So opportunity. Mm. The two, along with Mona's 14-year-old daughter, mm. Lindsay, and son, Cody, soon moved in together. Now, dolls, I have no idea what the appeal is when it comes to like Perez or Castro, whatever you want to call him. I only can comment on the physical here, but let me just say very unremarkable. In fact, very grim looking. So like all cult leaders, though, and the docos and stuff that talk about this, he must have had some kind of charm and charisma to get mm, these people. Yeah. Like these were otherwise, you know, young um, females that, you know, they themselves had a opportunity in life and they still chose this guy. Well, he made it rain. <laughs> I forget. And he could talk to the other side and had yes. magical powers. Anyways, old mate Trish had also moved into a nearby apartment complex. So Whatever happened, so Trish found him. Yep. And then he started dating KL. Yeah. And Trish must have just stayed in the scene. So they d- remember he and Trish dated for a bit, but then didn't work out and they sort of remained bonded and close friends. Right. We'll go into it in a little bit more as I think I can imagine what happened, but we'll talk about it in a bit. Okay. So she she moves nearby. Nearby in an apartment complex. So they're still friends or Trish is, like she's affiliated somehow. But the group didn't stay there long and within a few months moved to Wichita, Kansas. Or if you want to read it phonetically, Wichita, Kansas. Never do that again. (laughs) But no surprises here, though. Cody, the son, was left behind with his father. And also at this time, KL would soon join the group in Wichita. Okay. So all of these people from his past, like the people that he got close to are moving with him, them and their daughters. What group? You mean just the family? Yeah. yeah. So like the like the women. So Kale and his new whip. Basically. Sorry. Exactly. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Right. His new piece, his side piece. So thankful, his main piece, I don't know, just all these women and their daughters. So thankfully mm. she only stayed two weeks and then she returned to North Dakota to finish school. So that was KL. She's still in school. But now the group, which they actually called the family, moved to South Dakota. So now we have this small group that start to behave like a unit. So when in South Dakota, old mate Trish met a man called Brian Hughes. They started dating and soon married. Pretty quickly, actually. Mm. Then Mona, that other new woman that came onto the scene, Mm. also met someone and his name was Jim. And they became engaged fairly quickly. Okay. Bit sus. But Castro, and so around that sort of same time, under the sort of watchful eye and guidance of Castro, took Trish and Mona to see an insurance salesman to discuss all types of policies. And ultimately, this led to Mona taking out a $750,000 policy on her life, naming Lindsay, her teenage daughter, as a beneficiary and Trish as Lindsay's caregiver. Does that make sense? Yes. This is all some convoluted. Yeah, really sus. But Castro is nowhere in the paperwork, but he's there sort of pulling and pushing the leaders. 
The puppeteer. Yeah, but get this, Mona, her daughter and Jim, and Jim actually had a a private pilot's license, all Mm. mysteriously died in a plane crash. Mm. Now, it was not found straight away, so for a little while it was just said that they had actually disappeared or were missing. And in that time, Trish was all like, I want that insurance money. And they were like, um, nah, lady. And then they find, and then finally when the death certificates came in, Trish was actually paid the death benefits because Trish is the carer. Um, oh, sorry, that um, Trish was the carer of her daughter, Mona's daughter, Lindsay. Yeah. So it actually eventually, so if it, if it was just Mona that died, it would have gone to Lindsay but because all three of them had died, oh. it goes to Trish. Oh. So keep that in mind. Really weird, but it's weird at this point because this is the first kind of big, as a part of their group, a big death, and it was a plane crash. So how the hell could, I was thinking already in the case, how could anyone organize a plane crash? Yeah. Anyway, now we move to the summer of 2001 where the group move again for a short time to Missouri, but then they actually moved back to Wichita, Kansas. This time, Trish, uh, her hubby, Brian, and their newborn daughter, Nicole, along with Castro and KL, lived in little townhouses whilst they were figuring out a more permanent home solution. Yeah, so Castro and KL would sort of... Dating at that stage? Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Like, or like, uh, I don't know about dating, but they would certainly like entwined. Mm. Um, or a uh, Kale's under the spell. I don't know. And yeah. she remember this all started when she was fifteen. Kale. Mm. So she doesn't. She might think that's that's what love is, or that's yeah. what it's supposed to be like. Surely his real age would have come apparent. Might have been Maybe. too late by then. Well, you know what these people are like, crafty, manipulative, like con men really. But savvy old mate Trish, so they they were all looking for a permanent home. Then savvy old mate Trish took out a $1 million insurance policy on her own life that included an accidental death option. And then she named Brian and KL as their co as her co-beneficiary. Oh god, what's happening here? Yeah, what's going to happen? And now the group actually starts to grow a bit more. A real estate agent by the name of Jennifer Hudson originally oh, <laughs> the famous No, no, Hudson, not oh, right. not Hudson. <laughs> um but she originally met uh, Castro when she actually sold his group property back in Missouri. So he must have been charming these people left, right and center. I really don't know how. When you look at him, I don't know how. Mm. Um, so she had spent a bit of time with him and eventually their friendship developed a bit further and Jennifer ended up divorcing her husband and moving herself and her two daughters Emily, 10 years old, and Sarah, 17 years old, to Wichita in June 2001. Eek. Eek. So his little group of mostly women and their younger female children were slowly growing and Castro was constantly reinforcing this notion that he, this is where it's, again, cult cult leader um, kind of vibes, he was a 100-year-old, he himself was 100 years old and his body was often inhabited by three angels same <laughs> same bro <laughs> no that's that's weird these angels are arthur daniel and amber and amber <laughs> was supposedly the angel of death could you not pick like more angelic names i don't hear yeah, arthur daniel like just and amber amber, <laughs> amber. <laughs> maybe it's, it's a nice name but it just, is a stunning name but weird flex we, yeah odd so old mate Trish, 
upholstered all this, like, you know, really reconfirmed it by telling people that that when she came across Castro when he was young, he'd actually died and came back to life with these powers. So stitching this together, maybe when Trish, like, come came across Castro after he – Perez when he was beaten to death mm. she was like oh my god he was dead and he came back to life yes. and she actually started believing it and thinking like oh my god you are the omnipotent you are almighty whatever whatever yep so sad so that so he started really reinforcing that to this group of people sadly the young women or children like Emily and Sarah actually believed this because they it was actually adults reinforcing this. So they were super impressionable and believed anything he said. Yeah. So now we reach the name Angel's Landing. So mm-hmm. by spring of 2020, the small group purchased three homes side by side. In 2020? S- sorry. Sorry. It's <laughs> a jump to 18 years. <laughs> Whoops. It's good pick up there, Joel. And yeah. it's a spelling error on my mistake. Apologies to those listening at home. It's 20... So it's 2002. Yes. So just a year forward, the small group purchased three homes side by side in Cedric County, which is just outside um, Valley Center in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And from here, the group referred to the collective as Angel's Landing. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, he's an angel. He's 100 years old. The first two homes were purchased by Trish and then Jennifer, and there was heaps of acreage with the homes. The three-parcel property area, so it kind of looks – very much like a compound, like if you can think of an aerial view of like houses and lots of land around. Yeah. Um, and these were like adjacent to it. The homes were adjacent with the land around them. They did well getting them all together. Yeah. Well, Jennifer was the real estate agent. Ah, uh, yes, but never in Melbourne. Oh, you couldn't. You wouldn't dream of it all. Um, also at Angel's Landing and around these properties were like barn-like structures. Okay. Where the group would put all of Castro's vehicles and large, large model aeroplane collections. And no chickens. No chickens in the barn. But apparently Castro was somehow meeting all of their group needs, like we don't know how, which included lots of material possessions and a fairly exaggerated way of living, which is probably what also appealed to the women. Um, mm. Like all this material stuff. and um, But no idea how he's getting the money. Yeah. Um, well, we don't know. Mm. I mean, we know there's been an insurance claim mm. there. Um, and so that- he's, at this stage, he's making it rain for everyone. Yeah, he is. He like this literally the metaphor version of making it rain, which I'm sure everyone actually had that false sense of security being like, he is a provider here. He is powerful. Mm. It just adds to his mysterious sort of leadership position. The di- But the dynamic in Angel's Landing was that, Lou Castro was the figurehead and Trish became somewhat of a second in command. And according to both Emily and Sarah, Trish was actually like a second mother to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this has been all semi-okay, a bit grubby, but we'll start to get into some really terrible stuff. So at Angel's Landing now, Emily, who was the 10-year-old, had moved into the master bedroom with Castro. And um, I'll unfortunately remind you, that she's the daughter of one of the women that chose to live with Castro. Mm. He had convinced the group that he that he has all these types of magical powers, remember, and that he could actually heal the sick and know that when someone was actually going to die in the future and also read their future, but most terribly of all, he had actually convinced the members that 
for him to be able to have these powers, he needed someone pure to share his bed with Mm. as he was a seer and needed a young female virgin to take care of him or else he would die. Freaking hell. How old was she at this stage? So she was 10. Oh, my gosh. And remember, that's the member's own children. So, again, please skip forward if you wish to avoid some detail here. So we're going to discuss some awful crimes committed against young children. But in January 2002, Castro forced Emily to have oral, vaginal and anal sex with him. What a sicko. He also forced Emily's older sister, Sarah, who was 17, into the same sexual abuse. By 2007, the acts of sexual violence increased with the other girls on the compound, including KL. So it was actually noted that it wasn't voluntary for KL to participate, Mm. but she was forced on it. Mm. On two reported occasions, it is said that Castro threatened the women at gunpoint if they didn't comply with his commands. Wow. He threatened to kill Emily and Sarah's father and directly to kill KL if they if they actually didn't, um, in his words, step up. That's what he called it. They had to step up and do this with him or else he would kill KL in front of the girls or their own father. Wow. And Castro and yeah, Castro would also tell Sarah that he had to, quote, fix her so that she would be able to get married and have babies someday and the fix her part of his plans would to have sex with her on an ongoing basis and <sighs> it's so disgusting but sarah later recounts quote there was nothing i could do she said i remember saying am i fixed now mm. like in all cults things get worse um and the group need more money, of course. Mm. So in June, so we so that we we spoke about a bit of the sexual violence that happened um, between 2002 and 2007. We just jump back now to 2003 when Castro and Trish told Emily that it was Trish's quote time to go, and that Trish had failed to cross over during an earlier accident. No, it's because Trish has that million dollar. <laughs> Life insurance. insurance. Exactly. But But, go on. So, yeah. So, remember, she had that massive life insurance. So, Castro told Emily that Trish would be found dead by the pool. Because, remember, he has visions. um, (laughs) After she had fell and hit her head. This is going to happen in the future. He asked Emily if she would like to be there when it happened, which, of course, she declined. Mm. And Castro then told her that he would bend time so that she would not be there, but would be there as it happened. Right, so like somewhere else. Somewhere else, like okay, pal. Wow. He went to tell Emily that after Trish passed that she would put Nicole, Trish's daughter, so remember Trish had a daughter with um, Brian, into the pool um, and then pull her out and then then call 911. So basically. around her. Yeah, so basically he's coaching her of a fake scenario that he's going to play out essentially. (laughs) But he's psychic. Yeah, and then. Emily would then have to tell the authorities that Nicole had fallen into the pool, the baby or the child, and Trish had slipped and drowned while trying to get her daughter. Emily then actually told both Castro and Trish when they were going through this plan that she was actually sad about Trish dying. But Trish Trish assured her, and this is what Emily believed later on, that she would eventually come back in a new healthier body. Right, so she was crazy too. Yeah, so it's... (laughs) I can only imagine if Trish knew 
that they took the original 750000 from Mona and um, her little family, mm. that Trish somehow knew that her taking her own life, like a, a, a million-dollar life insurance, wouldn't end well. So I think maybe Trish actually believed Castro and was convinced that after time she would come back to life. Mm. So a couple of weeks... Wait, would, would Trish's money not go to her baby? So I think it would go to Brian. I think it would the husband. Yeah. So it doesn't end there. So it's not yeah. – So It doesn't go to KL or – No, it was um to, to both – it was the co-beneficiary to Brian, the husband, and Nicole, the daughter. But um, Castro is their beneficiary, is that right? Or um, KL no, is? No, well, what, yeah. So we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, fo- right. you're following well. Um, but a couple of weeks go past after that convo where they're like prepping – young Emily of what his might visions. happen, his vision. It was at this day Castro, Trish, Emily, Sarah and Nicole were the only ones at Angel's Landing. Perfect timing. So Castro included, instructed Sarah, the older daughter, that he would meet her up later in the shops and to go ahead without him. So Sarah left and he then told Emily to take Nicole into the nearby pool house and not come out. Okay. So, again, this is him bending time, like she's there but she's not there. <sighs> Emily then heard a shriek from Trish and a splash. Castro then came to Emily and told her to wait until he met up with Sarah at the shops so that he could leave and then instructed her to call 911. Emily, of course, obeyed and waited 20 minutes and then completed the plan. Afterward, she called her sister Sarah, who was at at the shops with Castro, who was crying, telling her that Trish fell in the pool. So it's like Castro's like, oh, no, Sarah, I can picture it. Trish has fallen in the pool. Um, Paramedics arrived and were pretty surprised to see Trish floating in the shallow end of the pool. (laughs) But they believed Emily when she told them the story of Castro that Castro had told her to tell. And Emily was actually upset because Mm. Trish was dead. Sadly, Trish, only aged 26, Mm. was pronounced dead and the cause being accidental drowning. Further to this, the autopsy revealed actually blunt force trauma to the head, but this was, isn't sus because you remember Emily was telling Porky's to the medics that she'd slipped and hit her head trying to save the daughter. Mm. So it wasn't that suspicious because it was someone, Emily's little Porky's. It's perfect murder. Mm. Most unsurprisingly, of course, the insurance payout landed in around August 2003 and it was paid out to Brian, the husband, Mm. who was also under the spell of Castro, the angel. Mm. So after this, more expensive cars cars appeared at the property over the years and it was said that over $1.5 million was actually spent on lavish cars. So heaps of Corvettes, big SUVs, and get this, the license plates were Angel 1, Angel 2, oh, etc. God. Weird flex, but he also donated $19,000 to local police department for a new police car and hosted parties at Angel's Landing and he would welcome the local police to them. Oh, buttering them up. Exactly. So the group grows. So in the year of the payout, Jennifer started dating a man called David Queering, whom she met through Brian, who did construction for what so did construction work for him um he was an easy target to them because he had recently lost his own wife and was didn't really like living alone so he actually joined the compound really easily yeah um then he moved a year later into the compound and in 2004 actually married jennifer 
Around this time now, Brian, Jennifer, KL, and another woman in the group, Megan Harbert, had taken their life insurance policies out. So now all of them are. So Brian inherited Trisha's money. Now he's got a life insurance policy. Jennifer's got one. KL's got one. And a new woman that had came across the group, all taking life insurance policies out. <laughs> but they're only like low 20s. Yeah. Maybe they're just like to play it safe. Oh, yeah, super. Setting up that future and thinking of, you know, people after their deaths. At every one of these, Castro was eerily present and to make sure that they would do so, to make sure who, where the policy was going, and but he was never actually named on the policies. Of course. Now Castro and this new woman, Megan, were dating and living together and the two ultimately had a child named Angelia in December 2004. Mm-hmm. Now we have another tragic accident, and of course, Castro needs money to come to into the group. So it's a little bit of a pattern. A few years go past, they spend all the money, they burn through it all, and then they have to find new ways of getting money. So in March, in inverted commas, in inverted commas, you know, work. They have to <laughs> get to work. Um, well, that's what Brittany said. Mm. Um, in March 2000, someone at home said, "You better work, bitch." Um, In March 2006, it was Brian's turn. He supposedly left the group to go to South Dakota and Castro actually told many that he, in one of his visions, that he was certain that he was left for good, which many thought was odd that he would make such a firm claim. (laughs) This is very sus, but in South Dakota, Brian was crushed to death under a vehicle when his jack slipped and he he was actually working underneath it. Now, this too was ruled an accident, but people thought it was very, very odd that he would have died this way given he was a very, very good mechanic mm. and he was one of the most safety conscious people people actually recalled. Yeah. So, like, this is weird. So, years later, Sarah actually thought Brian must have taken his own life after the grief of losing Trish and the teachings of so-called Angel Castro on death and passing over, etc. So... It's foul play or sus no matter how you look at it. And Sarah actually recalled, quote, Perez or Castro telling him, Brian, one day you'll get your chance to go to the other side. Mm. So I think what I imagine, editorializing speculation, that I reckon Castro is coaching these people. Yeah. And I think also the ones with the plane crash – he must have coached them into doing that somehow. I don't yeah. know how, but he must have talked them into it. Look, it's speculation. Well, but they thought that they were going to be angels. Yeah, and... like if they all die together, they'll get this money. I know I've been to the other side, all of that. So it's weird that, that you could literally convince people to kill themselves. Um, but KL this time was the one who benefited from – so it went to Trish, to Brian, who was then KL, was the beneficiary. Yeah. And she benefited from $1.24 million in insurance oh. payout. Spare me a dollar. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice, Joel? <laughs> now in August uh, 2006, Sherry Cox and her eight-year-old daughter, who we'll call Cece, began to visit Castro. So mm. people were drawn to the cars and the wealth and all of his claims, etc. And Castro was immediately infatuated by the young girl. Yuck, eight years old. Eight years old and had her pose provocatively in swimwear as mm. he took pictures. And this is so terrible and disgusting, but he placed cameras in the bathroom to watch her change. Mm. 
The Angels Landing group continued growing and unfortunately the disturbing sexual abuse occurred, as we mentioned earlier, between 2003 and 2007. And But somewhere in the background, there was actually suspicion. So finally, we have a detectives on the case. Mm. So a narcotics detective in Wichita called Ron Goodwin, what a detective name, like yeah. Detective Goodwin, um, had been investigating the group back in 2003, the year Trisha died. So mm. the lifestyle and parties, et cetera, drew attention, which often uh, unaccounted for meant sus drug activity. Okay. Also, it didn't appear that uh, Mr. Lou Castro, Angel Lou, worked or had a job. So where's the dough coming from? Exactly. He's making it rain from the sky. (laughs) Goodwin started with an internet search of Lou Castro, as we all would do, and tried with all his might to find a birth certificate, but there was nothing. But he came across the obituary of Mona, Jim and Lindsay, who died in the plane accident. So now he was actually – so his name, so um, Lou Castro's name actually came up in that obituary about Mona, Jim and Lindsay. Mm. So now he was connected to four people's deaths. So, but not Brian's at this point, but just Trish, Mona, Jim and Lindsay. Yeah. He was able to investigate the financial dealings of, of the group and found a pattern. Like every two and a half years or so, the account balances would be low. And then a few thousand dollars um, like so it'll be low to around a couple of thousand dollars and then someone would die and insurance payouts would Im- replenish the accounts. Impeccable timing. Also, given the random groupings of people, the fact that they were known as Angels Landing and the vanity license plate, the detective was the first one to on record to believe that they had a cult leader on his hands. Mm. So he figured instead of drugs, Castro was indoctrinating people into killing themselves in accidental ways after coordinating huge life insurance policies. Yeah. But this was all just suspicion. The detective actually needed proof and he actually worked in narcotics. So he thought this guy was drug dealing and he's like, this is even more sinister. Mm. One day Goodwin came across Castro who stopped and ate at a restaurant and the detective waiting until Castro left immediately jumped in to collect the glass and cutlery for fingerprints. But unfortunately, there was no clear fingerprint to reveal. So now we go, so we've got this detective on the case. He's really trying to catch something and find out who he is. So now we go to 2008 with another member death. So it's September 2008. Detective Goodwin was notified that Jennifer Hudson, the real estate agent, remember, Mm. who was a part of this group, died in a car accident. Eyewitness statements reported that was no way that Jennifer didn't see she was heading straight into an oncoming truck. Okay. So, so in, it he isn't doing it, but he must, might be. But he's like talking them into doing it. it. Yes. Yeah. In Goodwin's mind, he believed that Lou Castro had influenced Jennifer to commit suicide. This was about two and a half years after Brian's death. And sure enough, the bank accounts are running low Again, when Jennifer died, leaving a million-dollar policy that KL once again received. Mm. The detective didn't give up. He wanted to try again to get his better fingerprints um, to find out who Castro actually was. So he rocked up to Angel's Landing with glossy photographs of made-up suspects to a random crime. Yeah. So that's if you think about it, imagine like a photo and you touch a photo, how good that is to get your fingerprints on it. You know? Yes. 
the detective asked Castro to look at them and notice any suspects. Like this was a face cr- uh, fake crime. It's like, oh, Castro, you know, help us solve this crime. I wonder if you're allowed to deceive people these days. I don't you know. Need. I wonder. It's clever if you ask me. Yeah. But Castro dumped the photos nearby and get this. So, like, he didn't exactly pick it up with his hands. He just kind of took it in like as a bundle and placed it down next to him and used his fingernail really cheekily to move the photos around as if he knew exactly what the detective was trying to do and nothing eventuated. Mm. So that's like almost confirming that Castro is someone that's nefarious. But the detective succeeded in making Castro paranoid because he would eventually tell Sarah that, quote, they're trying to get me. So Castro took off again, this time to Tennessee to look for houses. Cracks started to form in the group and there was a riff, unfortunately, between sisters Emily and Sarah. Mm. KL had initially stayed with Emily and Nicole so that they could finish school where they were, but eventually they were all drawn to the group in Tennessee in June 2009. But thankfully, Sarah, who was just a little bit older, didn't move with the group and she was actually living with herself outside of Angel's Landing. Living with herself. Sorry, living. (laughs) Living by herself. That's what you do. That's what I do, just live with myself. (laughs) And now at 24 years old and on her own for the first time and independence of thought, she eventually began meeting or dating a man named Daniel McRaith. Mm Mm-hmm. Their relationship began to develop and Sarah confided in Daniel all about the group's ongoings and the accidental deaths and insurance payouts and also that from the age of 17 and 24, she had been repeatedly raped by Castro. Mm. So she actually spoke about this and that it took a while for her to open up, but it made her realize two things, that there's so much that was wrong about this and that she actually trusted this new partner of hers to tell him. And It seemed like the right person because, thankfully, Daniel reported this all to the FBI in January 2010 and it didn't take too long for word to reach to Detective Goodwin, our mate, and he and a member of the FBI called John Sullivan interviewed Daniel about it all. Mm. So it turns out Goodwin wasn't the only one investigating Castro. John Sullivan, the FBI detective, had as well from around 2007 just about the suspicious volume of purchases and stuff like that. Mm, geez, it makes you a bit paranoid though. Like, yeah, like, imagine like if someone I, investigating me. <laughs> what purchases are you making, Joel? Not on oh. the company card. Yeah. We don't have one. Fish, fish and chips <laughs> on a Friday. <laughs> but yummy. Uh, from their joint investigation and Daniel's tip, they found out that Castro had assumed a new identity as Joe Venegas in Tennessee. They traced it to a newly opened bank account and when contacting the bank, they confirmed from the footage when the account was opened that it was a piece of shit Castro. Yeah. So, And this meant that it was a fake name for a bank account, so they now actually had him for a crime of committing bank fraud. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just like, this guy, we think he's doing weird things. Mm. We can't prove anything, but they finally, they got him. On t- April 21st, 2010, a search warrant was executed for Joe, that's the new the new alias, um, and it was actually executed at his Tennessee's residence, so his new house. The investigators were feeling the pressure because it was at around the two-and-a-half-year mark since the last accidental death. Oh, so another one. So Castro's due. accounts were low and someone was ready. 
The search of the property yielded 11 firearms, two wallets, ID for Castro and Joe, along with social security and birth certificates. So now they also had him on identity fraud. Yeah. And finally, when taking him into custody with mandatory fingerprinting, they finally (laughs) discovered that Castro was in fact piece of shit Daniel Perez, the man that that supposedly died awaiting sentencing for statutory rape so many years ago. Yay. Yay. So before they could mount the case against him for the activities in the group, they threw the book at him for aggravated identity theft and social security When you say threw the book. You don't mean literally? I wish. But that I think that look, I take that to mean they every every word of the law, they basically went pinned to town it on, on him. him. Yeah, went to town on him, Joel. Uh, they gave this gave investigators enough time to interview Sarah and Emily and for them to gain other information for witnesses from around the area to really build the trial. Yeah. So now to the trial. Here's a list of things he was trialed for. First degree premeditated murder, so that's for Trish. One count of sexual exploitation of a child. Eight counts of rape. Seven counts of aggravated criminal sodomy. Three counts of aggravated sexual assault. Eight counts of making false information. So we all, we, oft, we obviously know that a lot more sexual crimes, the frequency was a lot higher. These were the ones that they could provide proof for. Yeah. which is very difficult. Yes. Um, the trial kept getting delayed and eventually took place in February 2015. So many witnesses from the group uh, testified, including Daniel, Sarah's boyfriend, KL eventually testified, mm. Emily, Cody, the original boy that wasn't allowed to move in with them, um, Michelle, Marilyn, David, Megan, um, Sarah eventually came forward, CC, that daughter, that was being watched behind the bathroom oh, no. and CC's mother. Uh, yeah. So all of them gave very powerful and damning testimonies. Did anyone stay by his side? No. <laughs> of the for, for, no. Um, of didn't the, say that in your Christian yeah. ball, did you? <laughs> didn't see that one coming, Angel Castro. Oh. Um, and so they all, from that whole 15-year period, all of those crimes actually occurred across six different states in America, which actually turns it into a federal crime. Mm. Emily told the truth of what happened at the pool pa- party that day. So she had to actually say, you know, I'm aware that I was told porkies and I told a porky. Mm. And many actually had to relive and speak of the sexual violence that they they were aware of or had happened to them. Yeah, Insurance agents and car s- salespersons also testified. Um, And what was eerily clear was the immense power and control that Castro had over all of these people. Yeah. Like even the insurance people, even if they thought it was suspicious, they still did it. Um, And the car sales people were under their spell. They didn't question where the money was coming from. Money talks. Money does talk. But remember, the only one that he was actually charged with was actually Trisha's murder. Um, The other murders of Mona, Lindsay, Jim, Jennifer and Brian couldn't actually be linked. Yeah. Um, of course, Daniel Perez, a.k.a. Castro, testified that he wasn't there for Trisha's death and that all of this sexual acts were consensual. Piece of shit. He also claimed that the beating he had at the original time that he was beat to death caused bouts of amnesia, which made him forget a lot of activity between the different states and caused him to dissociate. Oh, come off it. 
But of course, this was all bullshit. And thankfully, um, Daniel Perez, a.k.a. Castro, a.k.a. slimy piece of shit, was convicted on all counts and sentenced of two life terms with a consecutive sentence of 80 years. And he is still in prison. He's nasty ass um, in his early 60s as we speak. Good. That's a happy ending. That's the end. Well, yeah, I mean, we're glad he's away, but... It Crazy. does sound so familiar, but I guess that wasn't even that long ago. No, it wasn't. And we'll we'll post his ugly ass on our Insta. Um, we won't post the pictures of the other victims. I think no. we'll let them live their life in peace. But that's our second cult episode. Oh, I love a good cult. Yeah. That one wasn't even that religious motivated. No, it wasn't. It was just like him, like the power, like the power of him and what he's able to convince. But it's just funny how people are like, "Oh, well, I won't work. I'll just create a cult and." Everyone has to, you know, I get to have their bodies and I want their money. So from us at TTKG, we're going to say TTYL. Catch you next time. We'll talk to you later, dolls. Goodbye. Bye.